Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Thank you for gathering here this morning, and thanks for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie, and it's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. Uh, it is also my great joy and privilege to open up God's word with you this morning as we continue uh, this series called Waiting for Our King in this Advent season. And so as we've done over the last couple weeks, just wanna start by asking this question again. Like, hey, what, what is this Advent season about? Like, what does it mean? Because some of you may not be familiar with even the idea of it, depending on kind of church tradition and that sort of thing, but it simply means arrival or the sort of inbreaking. It's the idea of God coming upon us, breaking into our reality, and that there's this new reality then because of the work of Jesus that, that bursts forth, all right? And so we long for things to be set right, and so there was the first advent, which we will celebrate on Christmas Eve about the birth of Christ, but as Eric made mention of, it's more than simply just the countdown to Christmas, but rather it's this longing in the human heart for God to come back that our king will return one day, all right? And the picture we get, I don't know all the details of the book of Revelation, maybe you've read that at some point, you're like, this is kind of confusing. Here's what we know, that Jesus comes back victorious, all right? Jesus wins, all right? That that's how the story ends. There are details that we can argue about, but where we know about the story, what we know about the story is that Jesus is gonna come back victorious, riding on a white horse, and he's come to set everything right. And that's the king that we long for. And so this Advent season is this invitation to look in and say, Lord, will you come heal the brokenness and the pain All right, in the future, and that is our hope, but also in the present. So I've asked this question every week, and I want to continue to put this before you. Like, what thing is holding you in its grip? Like, what right now maybe has this power over you? Is there some sort of fear and anxiety, some, some worry, something that is a, an idol in your life, something that you're looking to for satisfaction, and there's this unwillingness to let that thing go, even though you know maybe deep in your heart, like if I would give that over to the Lord, I actually might experience freedom, but we're so fearful, and even the things that we get enslaved to sometimes, because we're comfortable with that, it's why the Israelites, when they're journeying to the promised land, they're like, hey, can we go back to Egypt? Because it was comfortable, it was familiar, and so there's these things that have us in their grip, and Advent is this invitation to cry out to the Lord and say, free me from that. And so what is it that you need to be freed from in this season? And so this morning, we are going to continue in our journey through different passages in the book of Isaiah, this ancient Old Testament book. And what I want to encourage you to do is have this in front of you this morning. And so if you brought a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 35. We're going to cover the, it's 10 verses. We're going to cover this whole chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back tables and you can turn to page 663 if you're using one of those because it'd be a little tricky to find where this book is located. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that one home uh, with you. It'd be, we'd love to serve you in that way. Or you can also get your phone out and go to cpwp.life. Swipe over the second card you will see says message notes. So the text this morning, anything that is up on the, the screen behind me will be listed there. There's space for you to actually kind of type in notes and follow along. You can email them to yourself afterwards. But we heard this read just a moment ago, all right? And so we're going to work our way through this. And I want to explore the, this theme, and it's a theme that dominates so much of the Scripture. In fact, I, we see it in the very opening pages of the Scripture, and it literally is this thread that you can kind of follow along throughout the whole storyline. And it's this idea of our longing for home. 
And so if we're gonna talk about a longing for home, we gotta define home for a moment because I mean something more than simply a house or a shelter, right? Because my guess is most of you at some point in your life, maybe you've stayed at a, at a hotel or you rented a house somewhere, you did that, and you might have celebrated that and enjoyed that, but there's this part of you that is longing just to get back to your own home. And why is that, all right? We stayed last weekend for a girl's swim meet and we were in a hotel room. We had a, we had a roof over our head and we had all the, those things, kind of basic necessities of life, but there was this part of me that couldn't wait to get home. Why is that? Is it because there I didn't have the roof over my head or that I didn't have running water? No, I had all of those, those things. It's because home is the place, though, that is particularly suited for you. Like, you've arranged it in such a way that it, you can come home to it, and there's this sense of sort of rest, respite, restoration, a bit of a kind of a safe haven, all right? And it's not the only way to view your home, right? If you just huddle in and you never talk to your neighbors, the home is given for mission as well. But it also is this space where you get to come in and just sort of rejuvenate and be put at a rest, our family, we lived in our home in this neighborhood just a couple miles up the road from here for almost 17 years, and then we moved this, this past March, all right? Um, we moved an entire one mile away, all right? So big move for us, all right? Now, again, this same idea. We moved into the new place, but even I would say now, just kind of first year of Christmas, putting up the tree in the new home, like all that, it's moved from this new house, this physical space that we inhabit to feeling more and more like a home. Why? Because we've set about making it suited to us, the things that we like, putting some of our things up. It would have been weird if the previous owner just left all his stuff maybe. You know, I mean, there's this sense here of like, no, let's make this our own. And the storyline of the scriptures is this, that we were created for a home, and the home in the scriptures is this idea of being in the presence of the Lord, to be home with the Lord, to have communion with the Lord, to have this vertical relationship with our maker. That's what you see in Genesis 1 and 2. We get two glorious chapters of it. And in there, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they are perfectly at home with their maker, with the creation, all right? There's no animals attacking them, all right? There's no mosquitoes that are biting them. There's none of those things happening, all right? And then you also have this perfect communion that they have with one another. There's no brokenness. There's no anxiety. They're not freaking out about holidays and fighting with one another. There's none of that that's taking place, right? It's perfectly harmonious. There's this sense of home, but we know that by the very third chapter, things get derailed, right? Things begin to spiral out of control. And what happens? Because they choose to find their home, they think that they can find rest in something else other than what God has provided for them, they are then banished from their home. And the storyline of the scriptures from beginning to end is the story of how God is going to get us home. Not just to protect us in a general sense of giving you a roof over your head, but how is he going to get us back to that place where we're in the presence of God? And so you see that. So you start reading through the scriptures. You see them banished from the garden, all right? But eventually the people are promised like they're going to get back to the promised land, but they started as slaves in Egypt. And so there's this journey we know in the time of Isaiah that there was exiles that were, uh, this exile that was beginning to take place where people were literally taken away from their homeland, people like the Babylonians that would come in. And what was the great storyline of the Jewish people? When can we return from exile? When can we be back home? And even when they got home, it tells us that the people that were there, many of the older generations would weep because they would see the temple, they would see their home, and it wasn't quite what it used to be, and they know that there's more. And so that longing exists. That's the story that we find ourselves in. 
my guess is, if you're honest, that resonates at a level because you and I give our time and attention all sorts of things, thinking that that'll, be, that'll bring that rest, that longing. There's kind of this ache of the soul. C.S. Lewis spoke about it this way and only the way C.S. Lewis can. It's just so brilliant. Mere Christianity. Maybe you've heard this quote before. It's a bit lengthy, but let me read this to you. He says this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires actually exists. He says, a body, or sorry, a baby feels hunger while there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim while there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire while there is such a thing as sex. He says, if I find in myself a desire, though, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, and that is such a key thought there. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. And so this longing that we have for home, you've been given good desires, but oftentimes what we do is we, they're misdirected and we think that that thing is an end in of itself. And so that was meant to point you, the relationships you have are meant to point you to the ultimate relationship with God, the home even that you have, all right? The house that you live in is meant as a good gift from the Father above, but it's not meant to be an end all, be all, all right? This is why we spend so much time trying to perfect it and get it just right, thinking that it'll satisfy, but it can never bring that rest that we long for. The amount of money that you have, the perfect Christmas experience, whatever it is, like it cannot satisfy. But those desires, they are actually meant to point you, is what Lewis will talk about here in this next slide about the country that we were made for. He says, so I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country or my true home, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. If there was a summary ever of Advent, I would say it is this. It is to not allow the vision of our God when he returns, the king that we await for, to get snowed under or pushed aside by the temporal sort of fleeting things of this world, that we must make it the main object of our life to press on to that other country. There is a, another home, another country, another land that awaits you if you are in Christ And so we have to ask the question, why do we give so much time and energy and effort to the things here, and do we lose the vision of what is to come? And it's not to say the things here are insignificant, but I love the way Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, talked about it. He says, we are oftentimes busy redecorating and refurbishing our hotel rooms as a way to think about this world, right? Like, you would never do that. We're like, wait, why, why are you giving time and energy and attention to that? And it's that same perspective that sometimes we are so caught up in things, rearranging, and it's like, no, no, that thing is temporary. There's this other home for you. And our great object should be to move toward that, to press on, and to help others do the same. You have friends, neighbors, family members, coworkers, people that you know well and people you haven't met yet, that they think that this country, meaning this land, this place, that this is all that there actually is and they don't have a true and right picture of what home can actually be and God wants more for them. And there's this longing and we get to step in and point them to the home and say, hey, we're on this journey. We're on this journey to this other country. Will you join up? 
And so Advent is that invitation as well to point other people to the reality. And so what I want to do in Isaiah 35 as we look at this, again, there's way more detail that we can get into, but I want to look at what I think are four movements that we see here, all right, as this work here, as you kind of see them group two to three verses at a time. And I want to examine these four movements that we see as God is setting everything right. It is this picture of one day how things will be. And so the first thing that we see is in verse the first two verses, there's this movement, I would say, from this sort of barrenness, this wilderness, to something that is beautiful and flourishing and blooming and teeming with life. Look again at verses one to two. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. This is how our future home is being described, this country that we were made for, right? This is what it's going to be like. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy. And singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And so there's this picture, we looked at this even last week as well, that there's this sort of barrenness. It's the way Romans 8 talks about the groaning. Maybe you get this imagery here of this wilderness, of this desert, of at one point maybe there was life there, but now it's just sort of broken down. There's nothing that is even inhabitable. And it's this idea here, Romans 8, 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We feel that weight, right? And so as much celebration is happening in this Christmas season, we look forward, we're putting the lights up and we're doing that and everybody's saying, you know, Merry Christmas and and there's all that kind of festive feeling in there. We also know though that there's loss, that this season comes around and it reminds us of who isn't there celebrating with us anymore. It reminds us of who will not maybe be around the Christmas table. It, it reminds us of the, the pain and the hardship and the brokenness. And there, let's just be honest, there's a groaning. You open up a web browser, you turn on the TV, whatever it is, however you get your news, the reality is it's all over the place that, they're, that the creation is groaning. And this imagery that's used by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, all right, it's likened to childbirth. I've never talked to a woman that just said, yeah, childbirth, the, the labor pains, it was, just, it was just glorious. It was so much fun. Like, when can I do that again, right? Now, it results in something amazing. And so there's hope in this, but there is this groaning. When we're longing for our home country. We're longing for things to be set right. Maybe another way to think about this is this is described, this movement from sort of this barrenness to actual beauty and flourishing. If, you, if you've ever read some of the Narnia series or you've seen some of the movies and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the kids stumble through this wardrobe and they end up in this magical land called Narnia. And what they notice right away is there's this white stuff that covers the ground. It's snow, in case you've never ventured out of Florida before, all right? And it just is everywhere. And one of the things that they learn as they encounter this character named Mr. Tumnus, he says this, it is winter in Narnia said Mr. Tumnus, and has been forever so long, always winter but never Christmas. And so there's a dreariness, there's a groaning, there's like, oh, can you imagine? Like there's this waiting, the season should be telling you like, hey, it's getting closer to Christmas, but it never actually comes. It's just winter day after winter day after winter day. This is a bit what's being described here in Isaiah 35 on the heels of what was talked about in Isaiah 34, that there's this this judgment and difficulty and all of this, and yet there's reason to have hope because look where it goes. It says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. 
Our God is a God of abundance. It's not that he created just one flower and said, oh, look at that, it burst forth in the wilderness. Like there's this abundance. Our God doesn't have some sort of scarcity mindset. He's not keeping some things back. It's abundant. That is the God that we worship. And one day, this wilderness, this barrenness, this groaning is gonna go away. There's gonna be this new birth and the king comes back and he sets everything right. This is the world that you and I are invited into. And I know it's not the world that we inhabit right now. We get glimpses, we get moments of new life bursting forth, but there's also this difficulty. But the promise here is that there's gonna be this movement from barrenness to something beautiful. You're gonna be one day inhabiting a better land, new heavens and new earth. Jesus is gonna come back and restore everything. He's gonna wipe away every tear. And then there's these descriptions that are used here, which if, you know, we don't know cultural context, but thankfully there are people that study these things and can tell us what is meant by Lebanon and Carmel. Some of you are like, oh, Carmel, I like that. It goes well with ice cream. That's not quite what it's talking about, right? But in this, Lebanon was known for its fertile soil. And so there's gonna be this transformation of the wilderness, of the barrenness, that, that the physical landscape of the earth is all gonna be now like Lebanon, this fertile soil. Carmel is this place of like known for its orderliness, that things are gonna be put in right order. Order. It's what we see in the Genesis account in one and two in the creation account of things being rightly ordered. Our God is a God of order and beauty and harmony. And then the Sharon is this, uh, was known for physical beauty. And so everything is going to be restored as God once had it. He's the designer, and this is where the story is heading. So the first movement that we see here in this encouragement, like what is this new country that awaits us? It's a movement from this barrenness, this wilderness to actual beauty. But it continues as well. Look at verses three to four. There's this movement, I think, from anxiety, worry, maybe a way to say but like a sadness, a depression, a discouragement that moves to a place of encouragement. And I love that these verses are here because the reality is we need to remind ourselves again and again and again because we're so prone, I'm so prone to forget it, that God is faithful, that he loves you, that he's moving toward you, that this is the story that you're caught up in. Look at verses three to four. It says this, strengthen then the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. It's not a picture of great physical strength. There's weak hands, feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious Heart. Did you come in here this morning with an anxious heart? What did you bring in? What are you carrying? What are some of the things that you're like, maybe even things that you're celebrating, but you're like, I don't know, when's the bubble gonna burst? How long is this going to last? And there's an anxiousness there. And we get these words, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he'll save you that there's these beautiful words that are spoken here to us, that in this ultimate country that we're made for and how our God is at work is he's bringing us from a place of discouragement to encouragement. And it's not just someday off in the future that he wants you to be encouraged in the here and now, even though there will still be brokenness. There will be still things that are not set right. There's this movement that can take place. But in order to do that, here's what I think we need to see. We have to understand that in this world that we inhabit now, we live in this contested space, that there is a very real enemy who wants to rob you of joy. And so in John chapter 8, I'll put this verse up here in a, in a moment. Jesus is having this dialogue. He's having this interaction, and he begins to talk about 
the enemy. He begins to talk about that one that is referred to as Satan or the devil. And here is how he describes this one who is the enemy of God, who is your enemy, who doesn't want you to actually experience joy, wants to keep you in that place of discouragement, doesn't want you to be encouraged in the truths, but wants you simply to try and fix it yourself. Wants you to to feel like, oh, New Year's is coming. There's gonna be these resolutions. I'm gonna do better and I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna do this. To buy into those sort of lies rather than know there's a God who loves you, who is fixing everything. He's setting everything right and you're simply invited into that story. So John 8, 44 says this. It says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desire. He was and begins to describe the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because what? Because there is no truth in him. And then Jesus says this, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. So as we talk about this movement where we wanna go from a discouraged, a weak people to ones that are encouraged in who we are in Christ, just know this, what you and I are up against is one who at his very core is a father of lies, that he speaks lies, that he comes up and he whispers to you that life is to be found somewhere other than being fully satisfied in the home that God is building. Let me ask you a moment, like what lies are you actually believing? What lies are you believing from the enemy who's sneaking up and saying, oh no, you need to have this person's acceptance in order to have kind of this wholeness, in order to really be happy. You need to have this going well in your life career-wise or school-wise or relationship-wise. Like You have to have that. Maybe there's a lie that like, oh, that thing, yeah, Jesus died for sins, but that, that thing, we don't, we don't want to talk about that. And so you're carrying shame thinking that that thing can't go away. You believe that you're unworthy of love, that there can't be this cleansing, and the enemy is speaking into your ear all the time. Out of his very character, because his very nature, he's the father of lies, it's what he knows, it's his native tongue. And he's telling you that you are not loved by the Father. He's telling you that you are not worthy. He's telling you that you deserve the terrible things that that have happened. I was listening to a podcast this week, and you see this kind of uh, second line in there, soft power versus hard power. And in it, it's a a podcast I'd commend to you. It's called This Cultural Moment. Um, A guy on there features a pastor out of Australia named Mark Sayers, a helpful author, uh, just thought like a um, kind of, thought leader, the way he critiques culture and stuff. And in it, he was, he was talking about um, this professor, Professor Nye is his name, out of Harvard, who coined this term soft power. And he's talking about the different ways in which battles engage, all right, and where people, or how wars are fought and how conflict, all these sort of things. And he says hard power is what you would think of as like coercion, our army's bigger than yours, we're going in, we're gonna destroy you, that, that sort of thing. Or just a, a forceful, like a, a willfulness, like I'm coming in and I'm forcing you to do this thing, but soft power is much more subtle. Soft power is about influence and co-opting somebody's thoughts, getting them to examine things, maybe to doubt this particular thing. And it's this sort of slippery slope. It is Genesis 3 played out. Think about it. The serpent, the father of lies, didn't show up on the scene and pin Adam and Eve down and force feed them fruit, right? You will eat the fruit, right? That's not how this story played out but rather came up in a moment of sort of soft power, trying to influence, to coerce, to subtly cast this sort of doubt. Did God really say, does God really want this for you? Do you really believe that this 
is the, the best possible way to live? Do, do you not know that God is holding out on you somehow? And so there's this movement here. And so we need to know this. The enemy that you and I are up against is a master of soft power. We sometimes expect, like when we think like spiritual battle and all that stuff, we're putting on the armor, like we're going out to fight kind of a traditional warfare sense. No, no, no. This is sort of like Russian hacks on Facebook kind of stuff that's taking place, right? That's more what this is talking about here. And so the soft power, this is how the enemy works. I want to ask you then, as this passage confronts us, like where is our focus? Because did you notice this beautiful line, all right? We can feel strength, we can feel weak, the feebleness of our knees and anxious heart. And then the words, be strong, fear not, which is not a command to say you shouldn't fear, like you just got to trust in yourself, believe in yourself. It's no, no, no. It goes from there and it says, behold your God. What are you beholding right now? What has captivated your attention? The more things that captivate your thoughts, your attention, your affections that are of this world, thinking that will satisfy, will only further enslave you, will lead to discouragement. But when we behold your God, when we behold our God, the language there is very personal as well, that we get an opportunity to behold this one who has come on the scene once and who is coming again to set everything right. When I get most discouraged, it's when I have stopped beholding God in his glory and I'm beholding circumstances, my own effort, I'm focused on anything but King Jesus. And I spiral into a place where there's discouragement, where there's anxiety, where there's anger. And I'm trying to get myself out of it. And the calling here is, whoa, whoa, you want to move toward this better country? You want to move from discouragement to encouragement? You need to behold your God. And look how it describes him. Because he will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. He will actually do this. Where is your focus? Is it on the God who is coming and will save? Or is it on you trying to fix it? A surefire way to be discouraged is just taking it on yourself. And the enemy wants you to do that. The enemy not only discourages you, but also whispers into your ear, into my ear, you're awesome, you're amazing, you can do this, you're better than those people, you don't need help. Why do you need grace? Grace is for losers and the weak. You can do this in your own strength. And the reality is the idea of grace, it does humble us because we need help, our God will come and save us. It means we need saving, we need rescuing. So where is your focus? I love how Jesus speaks of this. You might be familiar with this passage out of Luke 12. I'll put it up on the screen in a moment. And Jesus is looking out over a group of people that are bewildered, that they are confused, they're anxious. They're people just like us. That's the beauty of the scriptures. What things people dealt with a couple thousand years ago, we still feel that. So he looks out over this crowd and begins to speak these words. And he said to his disciples, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat, nor about your body and what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he says, consider or behold. He says, where's your focus? He's like, hey, let me just give you a real practical example. Let's look at the birds for a moment. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. They didn't get fed because they had a strategic plan and they stored up and did it. No, God took care of them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? It's a question of what are you beholding? Are you beholding God or are you beholding circumstances? 
And he's like, I'm just gonna give you a simple thing. He's like, just look at this raven, this inconsequential bird that is out there, all right? And look at how God provides. He builds upon this same sort of idea. He says, consider then, if you don't wanna look at the birds, consider the lilies then for a moment, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for the nations of the world seek after these things. He's saying, they're trying to find a home in those things and in food, and drink, and in parties, and all of that. And your father knows, he's saying, listen, like, he knows you need some of the basic necessities. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So God cares about the details of your life. He's not saying you shouldn't pursue having a roof over your head, and food for your family, and a good job, and all of that. But he is saying, don't let that thing become ultimate. He's like, I've got you. God wants to move you from a place of discouragement to encouragement, and that happens when we behold him. When we see, wow, he takes care of the birds, he takes care of the flowers, like how much more of that? We're made in his image, and he takes care of us. There's this movement, look at verses five to seven, from brokenness to wholeness to healing. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And so when this new country, when we get to be there, like this is what is gonna be taking place leading up to it, that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. It's this beautiful picture of this lush land and in this space, there's healing. There's physical healing that is taking place. But I think it speaks not only of physical healing, it speaks of psychological healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing that is taking place where things are set right. That God wants to move us from this place of brokenness to actually wholeness and healing. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in 2 Corinthians 5, and he uses this imagery of, of trying to describe the bodies as if it's like this tent that we have. And he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, there's that idea again, we groan. So he's saying like in this body, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We are gonna move from brokenness to this wholeness and this healing because you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus, have the Spirit. It is a guarantee. It is a deposit. This is going to happen. We saw this when Jesus came on the scene and the miracles, the messianic age begins and Jesus begins healing. We know that Jesus is still at work as we studied this fall, the book of Acts, and we see in Acts chapter three, there's the crippled man outside of the temple and what ends up happening to him? He is healed by the disciples and it tells us he goes into the temple and what does he do? It's Isaiah 35 stuff that's being referenced. He is leaping for joy. What is that saying? It's saying that Jesus is still at work through the power of the spirit, that this healing is coming. This is where the story is heading. Do you believe that? Have you trusted in that? The imagery of the water there. Again, are you 
satisfying your thirst through things of this world or the living water that Jesus offered to the, to the woman at the well who was trying to find her deep satisfaction, her identity in the arms of various men from one to the next to the next and on and on it went. And Jesus says, I'm offering you this living water. This is not your home. I have something more for you. And that's where this passage ends. Let's look at verses eight to 10. There's this movement throughout then this storyline of a people that have been exiled that are moving to their home. They're going to be in the presence of God as they were designed to be. And it says this, beginning in verse eight, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness, which is what everybody calls I-4 when they're stuck on it, I'm sure. But anyway, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return. Those who have been purchased by God, they are the ones that will return and come to Zion to come to the place of God's presence, it's telling us, with singing. And everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And as for sorrow and sighing, they shall flee away. This is what we are made for. And it speaks, if you picture it here, is a group of people Three times throughout the, the Jewish calendar, they would travel back to Jerusalem. So there's this image here of the people of God on this pilgrimage to go and to be in the city of God, to be able to go to the temple where it was believed the presence of God dwelt. And in this new country, we're gonna be on this highway that is taking us. We'll look at who's on that highway in a moment, but there's no danger, there's no more threat, there's no animals that are gonna attack you. There's this journey that is happening, and when we get there, here's what it's described. It says, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, that is a slightly different translation from the, the NIV. I was reading out of the ESV, and it says, all right, they shall obtain gladness and joy. And at first glance, it can kind of look like, okay, yeah, we'll obtain it. Almost like we're gonna get after it. We're gonna figure out how to have this gladness and joy. But I think this translation is a bit more accurate here. It's this idea, gladness and joy will overtake them. It's this picture of this pursuit of God. He in will bring his gladness and joy to bear upon your life. He will overtake you. You will be caught up in this, overwhelmed by this, flooded in the love of God. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And as for sorrow and sighing, they will, they will flee away. They're gonna hightail it out of there. There's no more sadness. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sighing. We will be overtaken with joy, overtaken with gladness that God would pursue us in such a way to do this, to bring this about. If you noticed earlier in this section, it said on a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness and the unclean shall not pass over it. And so in this beautiful description, here's what we need to see and here's what we need to do as we close this out. It's like, wow, I want that. I want to be overtaken with the gladness and the joy of the Lord. I want everything to be set right. I want to move from this place of barrenness, this wilderness to a place of beauty. I want to move from this place of discouragement to encouragement. I want to move, see all these particular movements happening from brokenness to wholeness to healing. I want to have this home. But here's the thing, the highway that gets us there, it says it's a highway for specific people. Because it's the highway, it is the way of holiness, and it says the unclean shall not pass on it. 
So only the people that are perfectly clean and holy are there. And so this passage is unbelievably beautiful and unbelievably terrifying and some really bad news if we just stopped here. Because we could look at this and be like, okay, that sounds great, but I can't travel that path. You can't travel that path. The reality is only those who are holy. And there's only one that can actually walk that path. And so as we've looked here, what I want to do for just a moment is look back over these movements. Because a few chapters later, if we were to jump ahead to Isaiah 53, we would see one who walked in perfect holiness. We would see one who traveled a road in order to bring us home. And he walked away from the Father's home to this world in order to bring us into our eternal home, to another country. That every movement that we hope for, Jesus went in the opposite direction. That you and I can't travel the way of holiness We need somebody to do it for us. And only Jesus is the one who's perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. And so who is fit to get to actually get home? Like this ends and it's like, I want that, but I can't get there. I am blocked from it. So we need the way of Jesus. So let me close with this. Let's celebrate this reality. Let's embrace this. Let's see in this Advent season what we need to focus on as we talk about the reality that first Advent of Jesus is look what he did to get us back. That he moved, one could say, from where everything was beautiful and flourishing and teeming with life from this beautiful to the barren. Isaiah 53 verse two, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is our savior. This is the God man Jesus. This is the one who moved into the neighborhood. Nothing striking about him. No physical beauty. That he moved from a place of absolute beauty and perfection in the heavenly realms. So Philippians 2 talk about, and he emptied himself. The beauty, the glory that he had and moved to the wilderness. He moved to the place of barrenness. He moved here. And because he did that, we are people that can now walk this highway, that we can get to the place, to this country that we were created for, when we see that Jesus made this movement, when he moved from the place of encouragement, of joy, to one of discouragement. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, he was despised and he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do you know that? That our God was sorrowful, that he was abandoned by his friends, that he was rejected, he was acquainted with grief. He was called a man of sorrows. He's the one that moved from wholeness to brokenness. Isaiah 53, verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was crushed. I should have been crushed, and you should have been crushed, and instead he was crushed in our place to deal with my unholiness, to deal with your unholiness. And he moved into a place of brokenness. And ultimately what we see when Jesus is there on that cross, he's moving from the place of home to actually being exiled. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The words of Isaiah 53, six here says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Like we've disobeyed, we're unholy, we've rejected, we've, we've committed treason against our king, we've believed a lie. No, this is how you build a home. It says we have turned everyone to his own way. And what? The Lord is laid on, not on us, but on him the iniquity of us all. This is a reference to Leviticus 16 and the idea, if you've heard this phrase before, of a scapegoat. 
and the scapegoat would have, the priest would come and would, in representative fashion would take all of the, the sin of the people and would place it upon the head of this animal and then that animal would be banished outside of the city, sent out into the wilderness. And what do we have here with Jesus? He is this one where all of the sin has been laid on him, all of our iniquity is put on him and he is cast outside of the city, up on a hill and put on a Roman cross so that we might be counted as holy. So in this beautiful exchange that would take place, this gospel, this good news, he would take all of our filth, our sin, our shame, our rebellion would be put on him, the wrath of God would be poured out on him, and we would get the holiness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, so that we can actually walk this way, that we might actually get to the home that we've been created for, being carried along the entire way by King Jesus because we can't do it on our own. So we wanna see these movements happen and the only way that they can is by us recognizing and submitting to the reality that Jesus took these movements the other way, that he was broken so we could be made whole, that he was exiled. Think about that. He was exiled from his home, exiled from the relationship with the Father so that you could be welcomed in as sons and as daughters, that we might be welcomed in. So let me close in prayer and I wanna give us just a moment to respond to this. As we are in this Advent season, I wanna give us time and some space here to repent. Like what have you been trying to build a home with? What is it that the Holy Spirit is bringing to mind? Maybe you need to repent for the first time of just trying to be Lord of your life and submit to King Jesus today. And then remember what Jesus has done, how he has moved towards us, how he has left everything in order to make us holy. And then we'll have an opportunity to rejoice. I'll give us some instruction here in just a moment on how we're gonna respond throughout the rest of our service. But let me pray for us and then give you some space to contemplate, to respond, to pray. If you need prayer, there'll be leaders in the back corners as well. So let me pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son in this first advent. And we feel still that groaning, that pain that we're not home yet that there is another home that you have prepared for us, a far country that you have for us. And so God, I thank you. The story is heading to a place of ultimate joy and of gladness and we will be overcome, overtaken with that. God, I pray for any here, God, that their journey has kept them stuck here, God, that they would be brought today from death to life, that they might actually know you and know hope and know you as their king, the one who's coming back to bring ultimate rescue and renewal. So Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would lead us all in a time of repentance, that you would apply the truths in the gospel, that we might remember who we are in you, that we might celebrate who you are, that we might glory in you. So God, hear our prayers now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.